good morning, First City. We had a little technical issue with the slides, and it may be the same thing this morning. But my name is Casey Nixon. Welcome again. If you're joining us online or if you're here, we're just glad to have you. Uh, sorry I'm not Rick. I know some of you are disappointed. I think it is part of his master plan. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Next week, he'll be like, oh, Rick, it's so good to have you back. I think that was his plan, so don't tell him I ratted him out. I'm pretty sure that was it. But you're stuck with me, and you're already here, so you might as well stay. That's kind of how I look at it, right? That's why we didn't announce it in advance. So last week, we talked about the improbable story of the gospel message. And last week, I attempted to sit down, and, and for those of you who know me, I'm not a sitter. I'm kind of a wanderer, so I'm going to try to stay in the middle, try to stay near uh, the slides, if we can get them to work. But um, I've, got a, I've got another follow-on to the improbable story. So when Rick and I talked, we talked about the who, what, when, where, and why of the gospel. And as we had our conversation, I said, Rick, you got to start with why. Because if you don't start with why, what else matters? We don't know why the gospel is so important. If we don't know why we need it, if we don't know why it's an integral part of the human story, who cares? Who cares about all the details? That was basically my uh, explanation to Rick, and he said, okay, I want you to teach it. I said, gladly, I love that topic, I'll do it. But I think there's an, an issue. All of us, when we hear the why of the gospel, I bet you're thinking like I do basic Bible knowledge, right? Why do we need the gospel? Because we're sinners and we're saved through Jesus. But I think that answer falls really short. I think that answer does not give us enough of an explanation. I think it goes a lot deeper than that, and I think the story's really cool, and so I want to talk about it with you this morning, okay? And so the issue is, when you think of the Bible, I suspect you think of the Bible as a line through history. It starts in Genesis 1-1, where God created everything that exists, and it goes through history, through ancient history, into modern history, and it goes to Revelation, and Revelation 21's the end of everything that we know, and God creates something new, right? That's how you see the Bible. That's how most people see the Bible, but I think that it's an inaccurate picture of the Bible because I think that the better picture is to look at the Bible as a circle, and the story comes full circle. Look at that. That's why you have Tyler around. All right, so the story comes full circle, and if you think of it as a circle... In the middle is a hub, and that hub is Jesus Christ. And Jesus is a hub that spokes into the story from the very beginning all the way around to the very end, making one complete story. And in fact, I'll show you a little example of what I mean. In Genesis 1-1, it says that God spoke everything into being. You guys know that, right? God spoke the entire world into being. And in John 1-1, it says that what he spoke into being, he used the logos or the word, which was Jesus Christ. So Jesus shows up all the way in the beginning of the story in Genesis 1-1. And when you get to the end in Revelation, we see Jesus again. There's this giant wedding feast, and all things are made new through him. It's one continuous story, and Jesus is the center of the whole story. And the explanation about why we need the gospel, you know, gospel means good news, right? It's the story of Jesus, right? It's the good news, the great story of Jesus Christ. Why do you need that? Because of relationship. And I'm going to explain, okay? Because of relationship. Because if we go to Genesis, in Genesis 3, there's this really cool passage. Uh, and in fact, it's on the next slide if I can get it to... Advance, I don't know if it will. There it is. Genesis 3, 8. 
Adam and Eve have just sinned. Okay, you know the story. Everybody who's ever read the Bible or been in church a little while knows the basics of the story, right? Adam and Eve, they sinned. They ate of a tree they weren't supposed to. And it says that as they were hiding, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. Because Adam and Eve, they walked with God. Now, there's a lot of interesting things in here, and this is why I want to encourage you to read your Bible. Read it for yourself, because there's tremendously cool things buried in the Bible. And one of them is this right here. It says he was walking with Adam in the cool of the day. Now, the Bible paints the picture as if this is a common occurrence, right? In the cool of the day, God kind of shows up. Maybe you're picturing dusk or uh, late afternoon when the sun kind of comes low in the sky, right? And, and here's God in the cool of the day. And that's not a bad picture, but there's a, a little bit of an issue, okay? When the Bible translators translated this passage all the way back to the King James, they used the word cool. But the underlying Hebrew root word is the word ruah, ruah. Now, some of you might know that as better translated, more commonly translated. In fact, hundreds of times in the scriptures translated as spirit, spirit. Sometimes it's wind or breath when referring to God, God's breath or wind spirit, uh, which is where we get the Hebrew root Yahweh, okay? So there's a connection there. But there's another connection that's really, really cool. Go back to Genesis 1. It says that God, the Ruah, hovered over the waters when the waters were without form and void. It's the Spirit of God. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? That's the Spirit of God. It walked with Adam. Hold that in mind because that's important. That's really, really important to the story. Now, Adam and Eve sinned. And the way I explain this to my teenage girls I basically said it's like this. You have a best friend. You're what we say in the South. You're thick as thieves. You're inseparable. You have a best friend, and everywhere you go, they go. And every time I look for one of you, I find the other. You can picture a friendship like that, right? You have that kind of friendship, but you went and did something really, really bad. And you messed up this friendship. You hurt your friend in a way that broke their trust and broke their heart. And while they still love you, they do not want to be around you. We all picture that, right? That's kind of the human version of what happened in the garden. God said, you've broken my heart. You've broken my trust. And when we get to Genesis 6, God says, my spirit will no longer dwell with man. My spirit will no longer dwell with man. And he also caps man's age. Now, thankfully, I don't know how it works, but he capped the age at 120, and I don't know about you, but I do not want to live to be 120. I am 40. It is painful. I do not want to see 120. So God says we're not going to dwell with man in Genesis 6, but remember, we're going around the circle. We get to Genesis 12, and God chooses a man, and he says, through you, I'm going to establish a relationship, a covenant, a promise relationship with my people. Right? That man's Abram. You remember Abram? He becomes Abraham. God establishes his relationship with Abraham. And he says, through you, the whole world's going to change. But it's still a distant relationship. Now, there are a couple of cool things in Genesis, what we call Christophanies, Jesus, or God in the flesh appears to Abraham. That's kind of cool, right? So we still see Jesus coming into the story. But ultimately, God has a distant relationship. It might be like today a Facebook relationship. 
God doesn't want to hang out. He doesn't want to come to the birthday party or the family gathering or meet you at the beach. But he, he doesn't want to completely sever the relationship so that we're still kind of social media friends. That's kind of the modern version of that, all right? Now, Genesis 6, God goes away. Genesis 12, he calls Abram. He says, Abram, you're going to be my man. I'm going to establish a relationship with these people. And then in Exodus, we meet a guy named Moses. You remember Moses, right? And Moses leads the God's people out of bondage. He kind of prefigures Jesus. He's kind of a human, lesser version of kind of the picture of what Jesus is going to be. But he does something really cool through Moses that you've got to understand to understand the story. He tells Moses, I want you to build a tabernacle. Now, tabernacle is just like a meeting tent. It's like a temple. It's like a church, like we would have today, but it's a tent, okay? So it's like a big canvas or uh, uh, skin cloth kind of tent. But he gives God, God gives, sorry, Moses, very specific instructions about how to build this tent. Size, dimensions. And God tells him, I want you to build it with three rooms, so the first is kind of a, a common room. It's the room in the front where everybody can kind of come and they can kind of worship. It's kind of like the sanctuary. And then there's the, the holy part, and that's where the priests will do their business. They'll do their sacrifices. They'll uh, burn incense. The holy part's kind of where the work of, uh, of religion gets done, okay? He says, but in the back, behind that is going to be the holy of holies. And that's going to be separated with a curtain, a really large, thick tapestry. And it'll be a separate room. And in the room, you're going to build a box. And the box is going to be made out of gopher wood. And he gives them very specific instructions. And in that box, I'll reside. So I'm going to be with you. But I'm not going to be right with you. You're going to know where I'm at, but you can't come in. In fact, only once a year, one person chosen by God by casting lots was allowed into the Holy of Holies in order to do a sacrifice for the people. You guys remember that, right? What was the box called? Anybody remember? The Ark of the Covenant, right? The Ark of the Covenant. And it was God's dwelling place on earth because he no longer dwelt and walked with man. And in fact, after Exodus, we see God establish a way for the people to kind of connect to him. And it's a system of intermediaries. So we find priests and prophets throughout the Old Testament. Now the priests, they take everybody's cry up to the Lord. So our cry to God goes through the priest. And the prophets bring God's word down to the people. So you and I as normal people can't go directly to God. We don't have that ability. We go to the priest and he goes to God on our behalf. And when God speaks to the people in mass, he speaks through the prophets that's the connection. Do you see it? But we can't, as sinful, dirty, broken people, go directly to God. It's like if God was crystalline, perfect, clear, blue water, and weird dirt. If we enter God's presence, it becomes mud, and nobody wants mud. That's what it's like. And so God says, you can't be in my presence, but I'll establish a, a, a line of communication. You can, you can comment on my photos you can leave me a message on Facebook. You can reach out, but we, but we can't talk directly. I can't do that. That's kind of the world that the Old Testament takes place in. And the Old Testament people, they're kind of like uh, addicts. They're addicted to sin, but they're kind of like addicts. They, they, they fall off the wagon, and they hurt themselves, and they hurt others, and they break relationships, and they do some pretty awful things. And then God reaches down, and he picks them up, and he says, I want to help you. Let me clean you up. Let me get you help. And they get help, and they go back to God, and they're good for a little while, but ultimately the pull of sin brings them back, and they fall away. 
And they go back to their addiction and their sin and their, their messed up brokenness. And then God picks them up and he dusts them off and he says, let me, let me help you. Let's, let's do rehab again. And that's the story of the Old Testament. As we see it go through ancient history, that's what happens. It's this constant cycle. And finally, God comes to a point where he says, you know what? I think you got the point. You can't fix yourself. Do you see it now, people? You can't fix yourself. But I have a way. And enters Jesus. And Jesus is the way that we can go directly to God because of Jesus' sacrifice. Now, we're going to spend several weeks talking all about that. Rick's going to teach on that. He's an amazing teacher about those things. He's going to cover that, okay? Set that aside for a second. So we see Jesus. Jesus comes. He lives. He lives a perfect life. He is the perfect sacrifice, the only possible perfect sacrifice who can make a way for us to go straight to God. But there's something buried in the gospel that I think a lot of us miss. And it's really, really important to the story of relationship. And Jesus says, he's in the upper room. It's my favorite part of the gospels. You know, the gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Kind of each a, a picture of, of Jesus' time on earth from a different angle. They were written to different audiences. That's generally why there's a different uh, a thrust in each book. If you read the book of Matthew, you read the book of John, they were trying to make different points or bring to light different aspects of Jesus' life. So I love the book of John. It's one of my favorites. And in the book of John, there's a great part. It's John kind of 13 and a half through John 16. And it's the last supper. It's the last night when they're in the upper room and Jesus is pouring out his heart. And the reason I love it so much is because it's not about Jesus. It is Jesus pouring out his heart to his disciples. These guys who remember last week, we learned they don't have any credentials. They don't have a pedigree. They have character. Just like you and me. They're nobodies that Jesus made into somebodies. And he's pouring out his heart to them. And it's amazing. And so when you read through, Jesus says something that I think is really interesting. In fact, in your Bibles, John 15, it'll be in red. If you have a red-letter Bible, it's Jesus' own words. He looks at Thomas. Why do we know Thomas? How do we know Thomas? What do we call Thomas? Doubting Thomas, right? Every single person knows doubting Thomas. I don't think he's doubting. I think he's pragmatic. If you're the kind of person who likes proof, Thomas is your guy. Okay, we talked about the disciples. They all have characters, they all have flaws, they all have foibles, right? Well, Thomas is a guy who wants proof. And so Jesus says something, he drops this bombshell that I think was devastating to the disciples. He said, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you can't come. Now remember, the disciples had staked everything on Jesus. They had given up their careers, their livelihood, they had probably given up familial or family relationships, because they were following this radical rabbi. They'd given up everything. And Jesus says, by the way, I'm leaving you and you can't come. And Thomas says, Lord, what are you talking about? Where are you going? Because Thomas wants proof. That's Thomas. But Jesus says something that I find so fascinating, and I think you should too. He says, it's better for you that I go away. Because when I go, I will send to you the comforter, the spirit of truth. Jesus says, it's better that I go away. Now the disciples, they're thinking, how is this possible? And if we took a poll here today, I imagine if I said, would you rather have God in you or Jesus beside you? Most of us would honestly say, I'd rather have Jesus beside me. I'd rather have the tangible 
physical Jesus than the intangible Holy Spirit. But Jesus' own words say it's better for you to have the Spirit than to have me. And if I go away, I will send him. And then when we travel through the rest of the New Testament, we find out that the Holy Spirit indwells believers. Now go back to the garden. What indwelled or what dwelled with Adam? Ruah, the Spirit of God. And when that trust was broken, God always wanted a way for his spirit to reside with man. He always wanted a way for relationship. And Jesus is the way. And Jesus says, I'm going to make it possible. You might picture it like this. God is perfect. So just kind of picture God on like his own planet. Like it's perfect. It's unbroken. It's, it's just perfect. And he's out here. And then there's us on our broken sphere over here and our broken relationships with all of our death and decay. And there's a great chasm. In fact, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples one day. He says, it's a great chasm of sin fixed between us and them, between the dead and the living. Between God's perfection and our dirtiness is this chasm. And we want to get from where we're at to where God is. And how do we do it? God made a way. It's the bridge of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the bridge over all of our sin that allows us to get from our sinful brokenness to God's presence without any other intermediary. We no longer need a priest or a prophet. We have Jesus as a direct path to God. And then we find out something else really cool as we continue around the circle of the Bible, as we go through the New Testament, the first uh, century, century and a half of Christianity, we find out that the Spirit is a down payment on something really cool. Check this out. In Revelation 21, almost the very end of the book, John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God made a way that in the end he's going to dwell with us in person. How cool is that? That's the Bible. That's the idea that God wants to have a relationship with us. In fact, it so much wants to have a relationship that one day he's going to dwell with us in person. Now here's why this is really cool. Genesis 3 says God walked with Adam in the Ruah, right? In the spirit. Jesus, God in the flesh, walked with his disciples on the earth. But there's this interesting note, I guess, in the Bible. Interesting footnote if you dig around a little bit. So do you remember uh, Moses Said, said, God, I want to see you. I want to see you as a man sees another man. I want to I see you. I want to behold you like a friendship. What God tell him? You can't. No man can see me and live. In fact, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. You remember that story? And you'll see my glory as it passes by. You'll essentially see the, the trail like Haley's Comet passing you by. That's all the glory humanity can stand Paul writes that no man has ever seen God. So the Bible leads us to believe that when God walked with Adam, he did it in some sort of spiritual way. And in the end, he's going to do it in some sort of tangible way. The whole story of the gospel hinges on God wanting to have a relationship with you and with me. 
that's the reason for Jesus. God, from the beginning, created mankind with the intent of establishing relationship. But here's the truth. Generally, God is a whisperer and not a yeller. He doesn't want to yell over the noise of our lives. He whispers, and he's waiting for us to clear out the clutter so that we can hear him. Now, you may have had an experience where God yelled over the noise, and sometimes he does, but that's not generally how he works. And he isn't generally a chaser, he's a waiter. He doesn't want to chase you while you're chasing after the world. He's waiting for you to stop and turn around. He's made a way for you to have as much of him as you want. But he's waiting for you to make the time for that relationship. Do you get that? That's the why of the gospel. The why is so that we can be in relationship with God without anybody in between so that we can have as much God as we want. But we are our own limitation. If you don't have as much God as you want in your life, it is not him, it is you. It is me. We are our own worst enemy. We are the one that prevents that wonderful, beautiful relationship. Not God. God's made a way. You can have as much God as you want. It's there for the taking. He gives without limit, without recompense, without scorn. He gives freely and wholly of himself to you, and he wants to live in you and be the biggest part of your life that anything can be. But he's waiting on you, he's waiting on me to make the time. That's the truth of the gospel. If you're new to faith, it'll be eye-opening and encouraging and exciting, and you'll just get the Christian story. If you're a seasoned veteran of the faith, I hope you'll leave with some new understanding and leave with a great idea of how to share that message with people who've never heard it. If you're like me and you grew up in church, it may seem kind of weird. There are people out in the world who have never heard of Jesus. They don't know anything about him. They just know he's some sort of religious figure. And they're waiting for the good news. They're waiting to find out that they can have as much God as they want if they're just willing to invest the time and the effort. So we didn't have a lot of time this morning. We didn't have enough time to get into uh, all the scriptural references, but I wanted you to have them because I don't want you to take my word for it. I'm nobody. But the Bible will teach you everything. So all those scriptural references, the whole story, all my notes, they're all on a piece of paper out by the communion table. I encourage you to take it with you as you go. If you're online, we'll post the notes in the comment section below the video, and you can read all about it. Everything I've said today, I spell out with all the references so you can look it up yourself, okay? So take that with you as you go. We have communion out on the back table. Communion is the, the physical symbol, the representation, the reminder of the story of Jesus Christ. In fact, in that same discourse in John, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, Tonight, I make a new covenant with you, a new promise made on the sacrifice of my body. And that's the sacrifice we remember when we take the body and the cup. Take the cracker and the wine. That's what that's all about. It's remembering the sacrifice and the promise. The promise to indwell man 
as a down payment on God's future presence in our world. You read to the end of Revelation, it's an amazing account of what's going to happen. Some of it's terrifying and some of it's beautiful. But in the end, those who love the Lord get to spend eternity in his physical presence in a beautiful, perfect place where there is no sorrow, there is no brokenness. We can all be there. We can have as much of that as we want. It's up to us. Embrace Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word and your presence. Let us hunger for a more fulfilled life in you, Lord. I pray that we would be unsatisfied with the status quo, unsatisfied with the amount of Jesus that we have and that we would crave more this week, Lord. Press upon our hearts the truth of your word. We love you. We pray these things for the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.